0: Hello and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson.
1: And I'm Chris Murphy. We're here to discuss the second episode of the HBO series The White Lotus, Mike White's darkly funny series about class, death, and choking on a bug on the back of a Vespa.
0: (laughs) Which would be me? Not if anymore. I were if I were ever foolish enough to get on a Vespa, okay, I'd be on the
1: front. And you'd be on the back. Full bugs, Dressed as Monica Vitti, <laughs> yeah, yeah. inhaling,
0: scratching bugs. my tongue.
1: Mm-mm. I see it. I see that for us.
0: <laughs> the episode we're talking about today is episode two, Italian Dream. Other than Vespa bugs, we have Portia and Albie going on a dinner together and having a kind of intense conversation yeah. about sex and gender, but. They don't really realize that's the conversation they're (laughs) having, maybe. Uh, We have poor Dominic falling deeper into the well of what might be sex addiction. We have possibly some sort of plot involving Tanya and Greg, which could lead us to more discussion about who dies. Yes. Uh, And then we have a conversation that you did with Beatrice Grano.
1: Yes. I talked to the actress that plays Mia about her big musical moment, which might involve a Haim sister.
0: It's kind of crazy. Gotta stay tuned for Haim. So, Chris, let's talk about the episode kind of in a broader sense before we get into the details of it. Um, For me, and maybe you disagree, I think the kind of thesis part of this episode is when Portia and Albie are at dinner. Mm. And of course, Portia's keeping an eye on Tanya in the corner, (laughs) having yet another meltdown. Um, And they're talking kind of guardedly at first about like... I think they're trying to suss each other out. Like, are you single? Like, what mm-hmm. kind of people do you like?
1: Light flirting is happening. Yeah.
0: And Portia um, goes on this kind of fraught monologue about like how she's sick of TikTok and Bumble, mm. and she wants someone who's ignorant of the discourse and she needs to up her meds and <laughs> she just wanna like has like wants to have adventure. Yes. And-
1: she wants a caveman. She basically right. she, yes. ba- and- she basically wants a caveman.
0: I just wanna have fun. Mm. I just wanna, I don't know, feel like fulfilled and have an adventure and like, I'm sick of fucking TikTok and, and Bumble and just screens and apps and sitting there binging Netflix. And I just, I just wanna like live. I just wanna live my life so badly. I just feel like I just wanna meet someone who's like, you know, totally ignorant of the discourse you know? Right. Right. Like, like someone who lives in a cave, like a caveman. Yeah. Yeah. I would date a caveman at this point. I mean, I think you could aim higher. Honestly, I think you could do better than a caveman. And right there, I think, is where this relationship seems to be turning, which is like there was a mutual attraction, Mm -hmm. but complex matters of like life in the 21st century, gender dynamics as they exist now, Mm -hmm. like come to bear on this. And you kind I mean, here's what I think. Yeah. I think Portia is like, I hate that I want this kind of like asshole that Albie has just described. Mm-hmm. And yet that promises more adventure than this nice kid next to me, across from me does.
1: He's trying to be sort of this perfect, you know, uh, Gen Z appropriate, you know, woman loving, consenting man. The that, opposite of his dad. The opposite of his dad. Yeah. Which it, as you said, it seems like it's not exactly what Portia wants. She wants a caveman. She wants somebody who's away from the discourse and Albie's whole personality is sort of shaped by the discourse (laughs) in a weird way. Um, And yet uh, I know I'm still rooting for them. I mean, and then you see the kiss at the end, right? You know, he like asks for consent to kiss her, which while very sweet in some ways, that's not like the sexiest way to have a first kiss. Right. Right. Right.
0: It's tricky. And I think that white is such a good writer because he's, sharp and t- satirical about these dynamics but sensitive to both sides mm-hmm. as well like you know he he understands where Porsche is coming from in terms of like everything feels so clinical and safe and yes. sterile and like and and so kind of preordained in a way like you have to behave this set of this set of ways in order for things to be yes. that's
1: what the culture w- is dictating right. right now
0: and you know and you get that feeling that like where where is the old adventure like where is the kind of transgress- transgressiveness of mm-hmm. the past um and on the other side, you have Albie who's like, yeah, I mean, like, what is he supposed to do? He's a young man in the world who's receiving all of these signals yes. about, like, the problems of male behavior, toxic masculinity. And so he's doing what a conscientious person kind of does in that situation, which is, like, listen and yeah. learn. <laughs> he's, li-
1: he's listening and learning, yeah. and yet it's completely nice guys finish last, which is sort yeah. of, like... I don't think that's necessarily the thesis that Mike White believes. And I don't think, as you said, I think he does a really great job of being fair to both sides. Like he doesn't come down as like Porsche's right to want a caveman or Albie's right to want to be sort of a more evolved, you know, man in the world. But these two things are at tension with each other, sort of, you know, being politically correct or like culturally sensitive and and engaging women like you know, humans and the individuals with respect that they are and also a very real sexual carnal desire to just sort of like, you know, fuck. For lack of a better word with somebody who isn't necessarily the most respectful or politically correct or, you know, who's not checking all the boxes in that way.
0: And where better to do the vulgar word you just said um, (laughs) Sorry, in fucking Sicily at this beautiful hotel with this random cute guy (sighs) you just met and it's like, here is the moment where you fall into this sort of, like, roll in the hay kind of mindset. I mean, what is more of a fantasy than that? It made me think about the opening credits. Ah, uh, okay, which, how so? Um. Start with these kind of like pastoral, pastoral frescoes or whatever that's sort of supposed to be emulating, <laughs> yeah. and then as the music that drop, that beat drops,
1: mm, mm, <laughs> yeah. mm, as the beat drops, then you I mean. start
0: to see these more carnal little yes. scenes: a blowjob, a stabbing, a something a, you know, a woman, a man ravaging a woman, yeah. like it and nice
1: sexier, but also yeah. more sort of base and yeah. fully
0: carnal, which seems to be kind of what this season thus far is about, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I think we also, if we want to switch gears over to uh, Ethan and Harper, Whew. we see that a similar sort of conversation unfolding. So w- what for you really stuck out with them this week?
1: I mean, what stuck out? I'm, I'm thinking about Ethan and his sort of midday, mid-morning. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, Post-exercise. Uh, jerk-off um, yeah. session. Um, but that did really stick out um, in terms of explaining their relationship. They also have some trouble connecting, right? The great thing about Harper, and the great thing about Aubrey Plaza as an actress, which I think she's doing such great work, is that she never really exactly says w- what she means. Like, she's very she's very honest and very forthcoming, but you can always, like, read her subtext so well and sort of her disappointment that, you know, instead of, you know, and she actually does say this, that, and would rather, you know, pull up Internet computer porn rather than like wait for her to have sex. That sort of prickliness and yet her inability to sort of like be the type of woman who would like have sex with him. Like, I don't believe right. that, like, right. you know, had she been there and he came back, I could see her being like, ew, get away from me. Go shower. You know, right. it's that sort of like those competing impulses of being like she wants to be the type of woman maybe a little bit like. Daphne, who she does sort of disparage, but who's like free and easy and like can just have morning sex and whatnot. But she's not that type no, of woman. No. And that's such a great sort of um, dichotomy there.
0: You know, we have these multiple scenes with Daphne and Cameron where Harper just can't help herself she can't, and says, I'm not materialistic or, you know, having a kid, you know, bringing a child into this world, like basically mm-hmm. insulting yeah. her you know, her, her companion's lies. Yeah, so like sort of
1: to their face, but like in a way right. without sort of directly being like, I think less,
0: And catching herself. Yes, and being you like, know. Uh,
1: and is aware of what she's doing and like is trying to fight that impulse, but like can't. I think Harper's sort of disdain for this sort of, for Cameron and Daphne um, and this couple that just seems to, you know, be, as she says, seems to be not truthful, seems to be lying about how, you know, easy breezy their relationship is mm-hmm. and like or putting up a front or putting up a facade, right? I do think that her disdain comes from a very real and sort of normal place of being like these people have everything that like I don't they're everything that I'm not in a way, and like I have to poke holes in that yeah. to sort of justify the way that I am in the world right. and the way that I exist in the world. Oh it's hard to s- to say the camera's on an asshole when we see him screaming at employees for right. you know sending his bags home and then him hitting on Harper yeah. in the middle of the ocean. I mean, that was ridiculous. I don't trust... Cam- I think Cameron and Harper... What did you think about uh, him sort of grabbing her leg in the middle of the ocean and sort of swimming out? Like, that yeah. was a little... Well,
0: meh. we still don't know why Cameron and um, Daphne invited these people on the trip. We yeah. assume, as Harper does, that it has something to do with this new money. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, we could maybe extrapolate a little bit further That Cameron, as much as he keeps shit talking Harper behind her back, like he can't alienate this newly very rich guy. He can't alienate his wife. Absolutely. You know, so maybe that I think that maybe Cameron has no idea how to interact with women that isn't either disdain or that. Yes. (laughs) Or or, or hitting her. Full on horny. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. You know, and I think, and the funny thing about that is that, like, and I think this kind of nicely ties into the Porsche stuff that we just talked about is that scene at the end. When uh, Cameron and Daphne are in their room and she says the thing about I think that sometimes Mm -hmm. women cut their husband's balls Mm. off and then don't find them sexy anymore and don't understand why. And you're like, and that is, I think, maybe something of what Portia is sort of starting to wrap her head around this idea of like, how much do you kind of beta your guy or whatever? (laughs) Um, But clearly that communicates to me that Daphne What does the cutting the balls off imply? Like, or what does having the balls still intact imply? It's like, go get it. Like, that kind of aggression, that male aggression, which, like, hopefully is not physical, but, like, certainly in pursuit of money or business or whatever. So I kind of wonder, like, what does Daphne know about the reason for this trip? You know, Mm -hmm. um, is she just along for the ride or is she are they kind of like a, you know, you know, Bonnie and Clyde sort yeah. of corporate raider types who are just like, she's like, I'll play my part, you play yours, and we're going to get this deal done.
1: But ultimately now, Harper and Ethan are, you know, in their, yeah. in the money ranking are above them. That but, she thinks,
0: but Harper thinks we're LARPing as rich people. Yes. You know, so that's, th- those are two marriages that seem to be um, at least steady in their dysfunction, let's yes. say. Then we have Tanya and Greg. I, my censor for like, jennifer coolidge coolaging it up a little too much or mike white kind of overwriting tanya is pretty is pretty sensitive you yeah. know. and i ha- it pinged a little bit in this episode
2: oh, my God. this is such a beautiful
1: view i wonder if anyone's ever jumped from
0: here how did how did it land for you
1: that is like a perfect sort of calibrated jennifer coolidge to me and that just sort of is like oh I'm like, oh, I'm so happy Tanya's here. Yeah. But then I felt until we got to her big dinner scene with Greg, I was a little bit like, okay, we're spending a lot of time on this Vespa. We're doing a lot, you know, the Monica Vitti thing, the Instagram yeah. picture, and Valentina's
0: like calling her Peppa the Pig, that and you're is like, also like, unbelievable. That's I get that Valentina's supposed to be blunt, but like, who who are we laughing at now, and how are we laughing yes. at them? That's that's my sort of always the eternal question with this character and mm-hmm. this performance. But also, the, the I'm glad you brought up the thing of like, I wonder if anyone's jumped, that sudden jolt into darkness. Yeah. Do you get Kathy Hilton in there at all? <laughs> Do
1: I ever? It's just always yeah. simmering underneath the surface for, yeah. for these yeah. women that yeah. have so much privilege. And we actually learn in this episode that. Tanya's worth half a billion dollars. Yeah, she's a lot got of money. A lot of money, even more money than I think.
0: From a shipping heir. Like, she's a shipping heir, which is like, so, sort of old world almost. Old like, world. Like, old fashioned. Yeah. Has a
1: weird relationship with her deceased father, yeah. who also, who actually, it's more Sutton, if anything, because they're oh, yeah, being the fair. father. Yeah. We're
0: talking real house, <laughs> by the way, guys. Sorry. And there's a yeah. lot of overlap, yeah. though,
1: because they do go on group trips, and it's actually. So and big. I'm sure Mike White watches the real house. Oh, Housewives. I'm absolutely yeah. sure. Yeah. And I feel like Tanya would fit right in with them. And I will say, I do, I also have, I think, a more sensitive. Um, Jennifer Coolidge, maybe not as sense of yours, but Jennifer Coolidge, like sort of zany censor mm-hmm. um, in terms of like, what are, what is she actually doing here? And I do, I did really love and appreciate her sort of meltdown at dinner with John and yeah. her being, because we think that she's sort of all out here, right? That she's sort of like up in the, you know, sort of crazy, but she, she also consents that he doesn't like her. She says, you don't like me.
0: <sighs> right. You, well, you, she hate, says you me, hate me,
1: which is sort of hysterical. And but, he's like,
0: no, I don't. It's like, you're, that's a strong word. You you should push back against that word a little bit more forcefully then. No, I don't. Yeah, I mean, it... I have questions about Greg. So we open... Uh, th- th- I think it's their first scene in this episode. Yes, it is, because they've mm-hmm. just woken up. Yeah. And Greg is sitting in bed, kind of staring blankly at the wall, looking troubled, mm-hmm. right? And so immediately you're like, okay... What's he up to? Something. Something's happening. Yeah. You know. At dinner, he's like, "Well, I wanted you to have a perfect day before I broke the bad news." Which I—that's I, a convention of movies and TV that I never really that get. Never like, that, Just do it. Don't give them the whole day and then <laughs> rip the rug out from one of them. Yeah, it's only going to make it worse. And so then I'm thinking, oh, that's what Greg was worried about in the morning. That's why he was sitting in bed feeling sad because he or bad or worried or whatever he was feeling because he got this call from work and was like, "Shit, I have to figure out a way to kind of break her heart."
1: Yeah, but actually... and then at the
0: end, at the very mm-hmm. end of the episode. Tanya wakes up, pads out to the bathroom or whatever, mm-hmm. and Greg is on the phone with someone kind of disparaging her and then saying, I love you. I love you. I think that White is a wilier, trickier writer than to be like, end of episode two, Greg's a fraud. Like yeah. I, I, I would have to imagine there's more to be developed with that yes. um, because uh, it, that would seem too soon for that kind of big turn.
1: I I do think and I th- you said this last week that like while we're definitely supposed to be laughing sort of with or maybe at Tanya it's sort of it's sort of confusing you can feel that like Mike White really does love this oh, actress yeah. and really loves yeah. and does love this character and that we are supposed to have some sympathy so like you know seeing you know watching Tanya experience that moment or not experience that moment we'll see if she does um but knowing that he's probably you know got a you know either a second family or a lover or something like that I felt a huge pang of just like, oh,
0: yeah. oh, like, oh, she doesn't deserve this. Well, and it just reinforces why she's so weird. She's so weird yeah, because she's... she doesn't know how to love people. She doesn't know how to trust people. She doesn't know how to be alone. She's, yeah. And she is going to, she's alone all the time, even when she's with people, yeah. because she doesn't know what they're there for. You know, they're either an employee or a husband that they've kind of, I mean, she, mm-hmm. the whole thing with the prenup, and he's like, and what he's saying kind of makes sense. He's like, I have to keep my job because if we get divorced, what am, I'm, you know, he's an older guy. Like, what am I going to do with a job? Yeah, where you know? will, yeah, where that, will I be? And that in? makes sense to me, how you long? know. 100%. But I don't know. I think you're right about, like, Mike White. Like, he has compassion for Tanya. And, and yes, he's going to, bad things are going to happen to her. I have no doubt. <laughs> bad things are going to happen to all these people. Oh, I'm, yes. I'm guessing. But, like, how bad is, is really the question?
1: It's trending downwards for her, for sure. Well, speaking of
0: trending, <laughs> I kind of feel like Mia and Lucia are trending up oh my god they
1: are they won. if there's if there was a ranking of this week <laughs> yeah. me and lucia won the week they are absolutely sitting pretty they are they've spent, got keys to hotel rooms <laughs> they are spending a rich man's money yep. without any sort of you know worry in the world and i you know what i did i got up and cheered i clapped i said yep. yes you girls you spend that money you you earn this you deserve this yeah <laughs> it was actually really like empowering for me to see me and lucia um, spending Dominic's money.
0: So you get this scene with Lucia, where you know she's clearly ambitious. She wants, she wants not to just to have a boyfriend for the week. She wants to get rich and yeah. autonomous and all that. Mm-hmm. And she's looking in the store window, and she's like, "The first thing I'm going to do is fire that bitch." And <laughs> yeah. You know. So clearly, okay, here are the gears of Lucia's ambition turning. Yes. But we also see with Mia that like she's not just the sort of meek sidekick. She's like, not a wallflower. She she has ambitions of her own that she realizes in a very small way in this episode which is kind of cool
1: in an amazing way and i i guess this is an amazing time to say that um mia i love actresses and the only thing that i love more than an actress is a singing actress it's my favorite thing in the world and mia gets this wonderful song she sings sort of ironically the best things in life are free you know you spend the whole episode with her and lucia spending money and they're drinking April spritzes and they're you know living their sort of capitalist fantasy and then she sings this gorgeous jazz standard Mm -hmm. about how it's actually all about the moon and the stars and that's all that we need but it's actually it's not true
0: yeah i mean they're really interesting characters in the way that they are kind of being played you know as the sort of i mean we mentioned rosencrantz and gildenstern last week but like (laughs) they're they're the sort of mischief makers they're the they're kind of running around you know they've got dominic all in his head about whatever and but they're and, meeting
1: other people, they're yeah. sort of connecting everybody in a way. It's that's beginning with, you know, the piano player and yeah. Lucia sees Ethan the morning right. yep. after.
0: Valentina is clearly annoyed with them. That was a great scene. So they're they're mischievous, but they're also, I think, you know, and maybe I'm projecting just because we've seen the last season and we know Armand and some of the other hotel staff were sort of the moral conscience of the show of that season. But like me and Lucia are of anyone on the series or this season. Like the people you want to root for.
1: Yes, you know they are, hundred, they are. I mean, it's an ensemble series, but right now, my protagonists, my main girlies, are me and Lucia. Yeah.
0: With Dominic, the way that he's looking—I mean, I don't mean to dehumanize Lucia, but like the way he's looking at her, like she's a bottle of whiskey. It's like, oh, are you? You're a sex addict. Yeah, you have a problem. You yeah, have
1: a, you have a literal sort of compulsion. Yeah. And Towards we see
0: those. when he has the girls over, you know, he swore he wouldn't do it again, and then yeah. he has not one but two over. <laughs>
1: exactly, and it was a sort of an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> and it's
0: this sort of bacchanal where it's like his son is like a room away or something, yeah. two rooms away. Um, that's compulsion. Yeah. and so you do sort of again. It's kind of you know interesting. It goes back to Alby, like these men or these people caught in the sort of flux of like cultural shifts and also just personal issues and whatever. Where mm-hmm. it's like. Dominic wants, seems to want to get better because that's like the sort of societally appropriate thing. But it's like, you maybe also need to get better because you have a problem. Because you have a problem, right?
1: And it's not just to save your family and and not just because your wife and your daughter aren't, you know, on vacation with you. Because of the way that you're, you are acting and sort of, you know, you know, parading through society.
0: So speaking of the Degrassos and Lucia and Mia, um... A listener emailed us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Yep, which you can do too. Please do. Uh, the listener's name is Maddie, and she writes, uh, one, theory ha- one theory I have after the first episode is that Lucia could somehow be related to the Degrassos. Ooh. They're in town because their family's ancestral roots are nearby, so that could be a possibility, making, the Dominic's, choi- making Dominic's choice to sleep with her a lot murkier. Uh, as for how related they are, of course, would be hard to guess, but obviously the closer they are, the uh, the more difficult the situation is. That's I mean, a fascinating yeah, theory. Yeah,
1: I didn't know this was the House of the Dragon. Yeah, <laughs>
0: but so it's possible. You know, Sicily's not that big. It's not
1: that big, but that would be. I mean, and we don't know. Her name could be Lucia de Grasso for all we know. We don't know.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 Um,
1: but given what has already transpired and what looks like, because you know, Lucia sort of spent the night the first at the end of the first episode, and it seems like it, things were sort of going in that direction at the end of the second episode, that would be, you know, we'd be heading into incest territory, which is something HBO, we do. That's something that happens on these HBO shows. Um, I don't, to me, that feels a little far-fetched because I don't know if that's necessarily the story that Mike White is. I don't know how, if that's sort of in line with my overall theory of what this season is about. He's
0: not so big on, like, conspiracy theory whatever there's there are going to be twists because yes. we know that at least one person or several people are dead yeah but like i don't think a dragon's gonna burst out of a minute or anything <laughs> you know? yeah Ex- yes yeah. Ex- but i appreciate the theory maddie and I, th- I mean it could be true that i think i think something that we should be mindful of going forward um is as we rewatch episodes you and i mm-hmm. um there is a possibility that white is dropping little clues here and yes. so this family trip to the ancestral homeland like Maybe that's just there for sort of background color on this family, yeah, or maybe it's there for a reason. So I don't think we should like no,
1: we dismiss shouldn't dismiss it. it and yeah. it could very well. It's honestly, i'm I'm shocked my brain didn't go there myself, yeah. honestly, didn't consider that. but that's a good theory,
0: yeah, thanks, Maddie. And keep the theories coming <laughs> still watching, we'll be back in just a moment. So, Chris, uh, now we're going to hear your interview with Beatrice Grano, who plays Mia on the show. Uh, anything small we should know before we listen to this conversation?
1: Yeah, she was absolutely lovely. And we talked a lot about her big musical moment at the end of the episode. I am so delighted to be talking to you and talking to one of the stars of White Lotus Season 2, Beatrice Grano. Thank you so much for joining me, Beatrice. Hi.
2: I'm good. I'm delighted to speak to you.
1: Wow. So were you familiar with the series The White Lotus before you joined season two? So did you watch season one? Did you yeah, know Mike yeah, White's well, work?
2: Like the series the series was really famous. It wasn't uh like really famous in Italy. Uh the only mm-hmm. people that watched it were people in the, you know, in the industry because they of course mm-hmm. they knew about it. Uh but when I got the audition I watched it again and I really loved this series. I remember when I was watching it, I was like, I can't watch this, like because this is so good. Like just the idea to mm-hmm. be in this project, it's just it's gonna break my heart. So I was <laughs> like, I can't believe in this. I can't because it's so good, and I, I love the way Mike White uh, writes and the way like the way he sees things. It's very similar to my taste. I love mm-hmm. this kind of tragic comedy and like this very beautiful moment. Alternates with like awkwardness and like tragic situations. And it just, I mean, I grew up with this when I did drama school in London. That was my world. I have a theater company in London as well. We do comedy.
1: Oh, wow. uh, What's your theater company called?
2: uh, It's called Super Glue Assembly Line.
1: Ooh, I love that.
2: (laughs) Our shows are. Uh, ensemble shows, and we all, mm-hmm. like, relate to one another, so we're all, like, stuck together, and also we always talk about, you know, everything that happens between taking a decision and not taking it when you're, like, stuck into something, and you can't yeah it, like, glue. Yeah,
1: that's, that's such a, I mean, that's so great. It actually really dovetails really nicely into your character of Mia, who you play on White Lotus, who sort of is, sort of stuck between decisions deciding whether she's going to join her friend Lucia, you know, and entertain certain guests at the hotel and also, you know, is an aspiring singer. So I'd love to hear um, you talk a little bit about um, like diving into Mia and sort of how much agency do you feel that she has in her life? Is she just sort of along for the ride with Lucia or is she sort of, you know, in control?
2: She doesn't really know what she wants. Like she loves to be, she's a dreamer at first, but then she changes her mind and then she says, "I don't want to do this," but then you know she changed. She constantly like transforms into something, and mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was great to play a character like that because I've always dreamed of playing, you know, a, a musician. And I, I've been playing the piano and singing for a long time, so for mm-hmm. me, the idea of merging these two things together was so exciting. Um, yeah, and, and I love, I love, you know, that moment in in set, episode two where mm-hmm. I sit down and play the piano because I think it's the first time that you actually see some connection between me what i love and also with lucia We're like in that moment we support each other and there's so much sweetness and also the the, the song i think it's um yeah the best, the best things in life in- are free
1: yeah in crosby jazz standard
2: yeah i love that song and have you heard of the sam cook version
1: yes and the sam cook version of course it's yeah yeah
2: best. yeah. you should, you should <laughs> it. it's so beautiful
1: um yeah, I know. I definitely want to ask you about that. I want to save that for the end because I do want to know a little bit about yeah. your your relationship with Lucia. Sort of, you know, uh, you you know, you spend all this time with sort of your best friend, Lucia, who's played by Simona Tabasco. Um, nice. And yes. And I would love to know sort of uh, did you create like a backstory for how Mia and Lucia sort of became friends or how they sort of, you know, got sort of became these sort of besties, if you will?
2: Well, um I mean, I don't, I'm not really like that. I don't always create backstories, especially mm-hmm. in this project that was a sort of a comedy and like, we just played with it. The thing is like me and Simona were like, we've been friends for like in real life for 10 years. I've oh, been known wow. 10 years because we auditioned a long time. We met at drama school a long time ago. Then <laughs> she went I didn't.
1: Oh wow! Um, Ooh, that's that's a little testy. <laughs> then
2: I went to London because Italy didn't want me, so I went. I went somewhere else.
1: Italy's uh, crazy. That's crazy, <laughs> then. But
2: I went to London and I, I I trained there. And then when I got back, I got this job, and it's like an Italian series that it's really famous. It's called. Mm-hmm. It's like a doctor show, and she was in the series, so it was like Simona. I met you again, and <laughs> we became fra- Yeah, and then we became friends working together, and then we did the self-tape together as well oh Oh,
1: together you did that you filmed your audition together
2: yeah because that's crazy yeah she called me and she said uh please i need help like uh you speak english very well so i need help with this self-tape and i read it and i was like i mean i i auditioned for this too like i'm playing me and you're playing lucia she was that's crazy so we did it together It's so much fun and we kept like thinking about it, like, can you imagine if this happens? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? But we always like said, can you imagine? Oh, let's stop, let's stop thinking about this. This is like too beautiful. Um, oh but then my we got it together. And then I think that that experience of White Lotus really made us, like, brought us closer. Like, we became really close friends and we used that a lot. We used that, that a lot also because we were together in this experience, like two Italian girls, like supporting each other. And that was Lucia and Mia. You
1: know, I love what you just said about you and um, Lucia, you know, me and Lucia being these outsiders, right? In this cast that's full of Americans and you and Simona are, you know, both outsiders in this cast of Americans, you know, and a lot of sort of like very famous American actors. What was that like? Was that sort of intimidating or were you like, well, I don't, you know, I'm, you know, went to London drama school and from Italy, I don't care about any of these people. Yeah. Um, What was that dynamic like?
2: I think, I think for me it was, I mean, I was, I was going crazy because I, You know, I love Aubrey Plaza, Michael Imperioli, and like Mm. Maury Abrams. So I was like, is this really like, how is this happening? How am I, uh, how am I at this level? I don't know. Am I, will I be good enough? Will I be like good as good as they are? And Mm -hmm. so I felt that, I felt that gap, of course. But then at one point, I was like, I mean, Mike White was looking for an Italian girl who could play the piano and sing. And he wanted to have this kind of, you know, pure and innocent vibe at the beginning. I was like, this is good for me. Like, (laughs) I mean, it's like, this is like, I was so lucky that he wrote the character because that was the luck moment. Because when he was writing it, he didn't know that there was an Italian girl there that was just perfect.
1: Yeah, that was was perfect.
2: That moment was lucky for me. But once I got there, I was like, this is so incredible. I feel so grateful. But at the same time, you know, I'm helping this show as well, because, Mm -hmm. you know, I think, um,
1: they uh, need you. You're, you're integral. You're an integral part of the cast, right? There's you're, you're you're absolutely necessary. And I love, I love what you just said about, um, Mia being sort of like an innocent girl, at least at first and whatnot. And, you know, in the first episode, you throw a drink at the hotel pianist because he, you know, insinuates that you're a sex worker. Right. And that's, and which is so crazy. So she's sort of wrestling with like, you know, what she has to do to sort of get ahead with, you know, and to sort of live the life that she wants and not wanting to sort of embody the term of, you know, being a, she says, I'm, you know, I'm a singer. I'm not a prostitute. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about like that sort of that no, juxtaposition? That's sort of like that. There's a two forces within her that are at odds.
2: Yeah. There, there's something about, you know, that is quite funny. I think Mike White kind of yeah. made that up while we were working together. Like this joke about my character that, every time I kind of open up like Mm -hmm. I want to be a singer that's my dream and on the other side people like misunderstands it and they go so you want to have sex like (laughs)
1: yes
2: (laughs) you're like this happy because of this and and she goes no I'm just being opened you know and I'm smiling at you the piano guy not because I want to have sex with you but because you're a musician and I want to be that too and and I think The thing is like, you know, when you want something really bad that you become so clumsy because you want to get there and you don't Mm -hmm. think just like, maybe I can do this, this and this. And then while you do it, you just, you know, you turn everything apart and like Mia will do so many mess, so much mess. And it's like, she's clumsy and she doesn't really know. Like she just wants to play the piano. You know
1: and i think that's so important it's like i think there's such an amazing um what mike White does so well is that there is a class distinction right it's like me and lucia there's this five star hotel that's in their town that they're not allowed to enter valentina says no you can't come in yeah. whatnot and there's so much you know opportunity wealth connections in there and if they have to you know go via sex work you know to to make their dreams come true then why shouldn't they i was so happy to see in this episode you and lucia when you when you got in when you had that scene with valentina and she was so mad you know when dominic michael imperioli puts your names on the hotel room you talk to me about that like valentina the relationship between me and lucia and valentina and sort of you know you know lucia even says like hey you're a working girl we're working girls we're all working here we're all trying to get ahead
2: yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing, and it's it's fun because there's never judgment about it. You know, you mm-hmm. normally go, oh, this two poor like, do you know, do you, what's the word? How do you call it? Do you say be- baby squillo? Now in English we say.
1: Ooh, tell me. I took Italian for a minute, uh, so maybe I know this word. I don't know
2: what to say in English, but you know, like you know, you <laughs> see a young girl like, and she's a prostitute, and you go like, oh poor little girl. She's a victim. Like this Mm -hmm. man's fighting, blah, blah, blah. But they they just don't care. And the thing is like, there's no judgment whatsoever. They just, it's a game. They're like, we're going to do this. They're rich people. We are like, you know, (laughs) it's fun. It's just, and it's a comedy, you know, thing is, thing about this show is that it's a comedy and it it, it has so much deep, deep thoughts into it. But at the end, like, like, you know, we we just want to have fun and we just want to entertain. And I think it's, It was great. It was just great to play that character.
1: Oh my gosh. Well, speaking of entertaining, and we did talk about this a little bit, I've got to say your number, your big piano number from episode two is so absolutely fantastic. And it is sort of ironic, right? You're singing the best things in life for free. And yet the whole episode, we see you like spending money and like, you know, like, and like spending this man's money. It's sort of like, it's ironic. So how did you come up with what song? How did you guys land on that song? It's sort of perfect for the episode.
2: I mean, mean, all the songs were Mike White's choices. And I'm playing, I'm playing like five, songs in the show uh and they're all like yeah and it was kind of related to we played it live i mean i I played it live um um, so it was very fun for me to like just sit down there and like play that song because it was it was a real performance because i I was there like and it was really happening it wasn't pre-recorded nothing wow and i love that song because you know it's kind of like that's the moment where you see me and Lucia being a bit like superficial, like, "Oh, let's go in, let's go crazy, let's put on makeup." But then we have that moment, we share that moment when I sing, and like I look at Lucia, and Lucia looks back at me almost like almost like moved by the performance. Mm-hmm. so sweet. And the, the, the song says, "The best things in life are free, which it's basically our love we have for one another, our friendship. Mm at the end i think it's the mo- is is the only like it's the only spontaneous and like truthful relationship in the series wow Since that's really we are always like really close and we always support each other and it's i mean I, I love the fact that you know mike wanted to tell a story of like a female friendship cuz mm-hmm. you don't always see that The stars belong to everyone Spring
1: So fantastic, and I think something that viewers might not know is that um, S.D. Heim, really one yes. of the Heim sisters, was a musical consultant on the show. So you worked with her on these songs. So can you please tell me, as a big Heim fan, can you tell me what that was like, My or what God. you know how she helped shape the the song and the piece?
2: She, she was everything that you see. Like she, she was like fundamental, and I'm, I'm really, I'm serious. Also, as a person, I am very, um, I don't open up straight away. So when Mm -hmm. like she arrived, I was like, "Oh my god, she's gonna tell me how to do things," and I like I didn't even know where to start, and like I was so scared. Mm -hmm. But her personality is so special that she managed to kind of break that with me. I don't know how, Um, and we we really connected. And I remember because I'm a folk singer, my voice it's Mm -hmm. very like breathy voice, uh, but she was breathy breathy is a bad word like what no, would
1: breathy is great it's great I think your voice and I'll tell you I think your voice is it's, it's beautiful it's breathy it's like you have a really great belt but it's like lyrical it's, it's floaty it's, it's like no, it's,
2: I would, it's very like, floaty normally I would sing with a lot of air she
1: mm-hmm. was like
2: Beatrice no, you're here <laughs> this is your moment like you have to sing it
1: she and said belt yeah, she said you gotta belt, belt. belt it out
2: belt it because you have to like this is your moment and i was like yeah. i don't know if i can do that and she was like yes you can and then and then eventually like she really like made me see how my voice can really fly and i was really happy about it and also when she arrived you know i'm gonna say i knew him band okay but they're not really famous in italy so i, I didn't know <laughs> i didn't know the faces straight away
1: totally so, i yeah i so understand you know, that that's actually very fair so
2: so she arrived, and we started working together. And then, like, I didn't connect it straight away. And and then and then she was singing so well, and I said, "Esti, your voice is beautiful. Like, you're a musician, right?" And she said, "Yeah, I have a band with my sisters." And I said, "Oh, that is amazing. What do you guys do?" And then, and then uh, the producer, Dave Bernard, was there and he said, uh, Beatrice, she's from him band. Do you know him, him band? I was like, him. what? what the- <laughs> uh, okay. That's
1: so funny. And I was
2: like, I'm so sorry, Esty. Like, I'm so sorry. Um, and then that's an
1: honest like, mistake.
2: I, I know. That's- and then I messaged my, my uh, musician's friend back in Italy and I said, this happened to me today. And they were so angry at me. They were like, Beatrice, <laughs> how could you? They're like, oh. it's <laughs>
1: oh my gosh, that's absolutely! I think that's a, the best way to meet him I think that's I think that's incredible. Yeah, well, beatrice thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank it was you, so lovely talking it was to you. So
2: amazing to talk to you. It was great. Thank you.
0: All right, Chris. uh Now it's time for the final segment of this and every episode of Still Watching the White Lotus. Who's going to die? Uh, just so you know, you know. Uh, there is something at stake yeah, here. Yeah, there are stakes. Whoever of the two of us is right gets an Aperol Spritz.
1: Yeah, right. And one of those big ones like they have in the show. Yeah. Those big orange
0: ones. Which I kind of hope you win because I think they're so gross. Oh, <laughs> my God. Okay, I hope I <laughs> yeah, win too. Yeah. Maybe we could alter maybe my Maybe Negroni price. Spagliato for <laughs> you? Mm, I don't know. Maybe just the Spagliato. <laughs> maybe just the Prosecco. Huh. Um, but last week, Chris, you thought it might be poor Tanya. I, yes. Um, I was maybe even darker and said Mia andor Lucia, which mm-hmm. I really, after this episode especially, I'm like, I hope that's not true. Oh, absolutely. Um But also uh, another person has weighed in. Ooh, we have, okay. A Wait. listener named Tanya, coincidentally. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't this my is Tanya, it's not, not Jennifer Gould. Po- this story. is not poor shipping here, is Tanya. This is a different <laughs> Tanya who listens to this podcast. Okay. Um She wrote in about Tanya. Okay, uh, and about Greg. Tanya. Does yeah. she think it's Tanya? Well, uh, Tanya writes, uh, maybe Greg has a secret family and plans on murdering Tanya for the money, and that's why he didn't want the assistant there. Mm. So uh, my guess, this is Tanya writing, is Portia saves Tanya, and the three Italian-Americans get dragged into a cover-up because by that time, uh, Portia is... Fucking the Stanford. <laughs> i was
1: fucking the Stanford graph. Okay. Uh, wow. That's, that's a very in-depth yeah. theory.
0: Uh, but I, I kind of like. It. I mean, that would tilt this show more into like Knives Out territory. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But um, which, hey, you know, you never know. You never know. Um, but that's I, interesting, Tanya. Thank you for writing in. Yeah. So um, thank
1: you for writing in. I do think that's. I think that's very interesting. I mean, I guess from this episode we learned that like there was a prenup intact. So I don't know how much the mur- you know that complicates the murdering for right. money thing a little bit.
0: So I have a new theory. Okay. What's I mean, new? Mike going to have a new theory every week. Cause that's, that's fun, right? Yeah. It's fun. Of it, yes. um, based on this, you know, we kind of started this episode by talking about this very, I think thesis heavy conversation between Portia uh, and Albie. I don't know. I think they might kind of Ophelia together or no something. Way. Or, yeah. yeah Both I don't of know. Them. Maybe Albie tries to be like the bold man and saves her from drowning or something. Okay. <laughs> you know, something really tragic like that. Something, Yeah. And he would um, be
1: ultimate sacrifice as a man. And whatever. it
0: would explain why Daphne's completely, uh, seemingly unaware of these deaths.
1: Yes. Because right? she's it, not
0: related to them at it's all. It's
1: not in her circle, yeah. which again is another thing because I, my updated theory comes from that moment with Cameron on the phone. I was really, really struck by Cameron screaming about his luggage on the phone.
0: <laughs> it was very aggressive. Is he going to kill a Delta employee or something? <laughs> yeah. <yes>. yeah.
1: <laughs> it's going to be a, a, a Delta <laughs> stewardess. Um, but no, I actually think that we see that he's capable of rage, and mm-hmm. and Daphne says that weird thing that he's got a long fuse, but like sometimes he blows up. Sometimes he blows up. It's kind of funny. It's kind of yeah. <laughs> she's like ha ha ha. It's not a big deal. So given sort of his lascivious sort of attitude toward Harper and their sort of on and off again thing, I was like maybe maybe they end up hooking up or something and
2: mm. somehow
1: that ends really poorly for harper and that's and that's why you know her reaction is so crazy um it's like oh my god that's my friend harper who is based oh, wow. down in the mediterranean which i mean i can
0: kind of see it harper's trying to be adventurous yes trying maybe to... she gets on a jet ski <laughs> yeah,
1: and those are dangerous
0: yeah you know final day let me just you know like Get my groove back, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Oh, so we're, we're we're now we're we're really mired in tragedy. I yeah, mean, all no. of our predictions are sad. Well, there's uh, no
1: fun prediction, is there? <laughs> no,
0: I guess not. No,
1: but that would be really sad, really yeah. tough. Because I I would hate to see Harper go that way, and I would hate if Cameron were responsible for Harper going. Um, but given his rage, I don't know. I could see it.
0: Yeah, if you have any strong thoughts about who might be dead, please email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Give us your theories about who those bodies in the water are. In the meantime, between uh, before next week, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Rylos. Chris, where are you? And you can find me on Twitter at Christris. Anything at VF.com to plug?
1: Uh, not uh, basically this podcast, baby, <laughs> oh so keep God. listening.
0: I like that focus. <laughs>
1: This has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our editor and producer is Dave Gonzalez, and we had production help from Peyton Hayes and Katie Rich. We had technical assistance from Scott Lee. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next week for episode three. Looking forward to seeing you then.